0: Hello and welcome to Policy Pod, a podcast from the University of Southampton's knowledge brokerage unit, Public Policy Southampton. My name is Giles, I'm your host, and I have the pleasure of leading Public Policy Southampton, where we work to enhance the local, sub-national, national national, and international policy impacts of research conducted at the University of Southampton. In this episode, I'm joined by Mary Barker. Mary is Professor of Psychology and Behavioural Science at the University of Southampton, and Honorary Professor in Psychology at the Institute for Women's Health at University College London. So before we talk about what's happened over the course of the last 12 months, let's pull all the way back. What did you do for A-levels, Mary?
1: So when I was at school, this is in the nineteen late 1970s, so I had aspirations to be a nurse, and then I did my GCSEs, and to everybody's amazement, I got a lot of GCSEs, like an excessive number of GCSEs of really good grades. So everybody then started to think, or people around me started <laughs> to think that, maybe nurse was slightly underselling myself i don't know why because it seemed to be a very good career and maybe also the other point was that i suddenly realized that involved a lot of sick and um poo and things that i wasn't great with uh and it dawned on me that actually i'd be a terrible nurse which i think was a very good early uh awakening so i then decided to go and do some a levels because i started to think maybe i should go to university because in those days nursing was not a university degree so rather than go and do nursing, I would maybe go to do some A levels and then go and think about university. So I signed up for some A levels and I signed up for the A levels I wanted to do, which one of which was biology, another of which was English. And then I thought, well, to have any kind of fighting chance of doing anything in healthcare, I probably needed chemistry, which I wasn't so keen on, but I had done at GCSE. So I went to sign up and they went, no, you absolutely can't do that. You either have to do sciences or you do humanities and you can't possibly do both
0: oh right okay
1: this is the this is the dark ages all right it's a long time ago so i then had to have a hissy fit and draw in my dad who had a lot of letters after his name all of which he put on a letter to them saying my daughter is going to do biology chemistry in english because that's what she wants to do so they relented so i did biology chemistry in english and um was not great at chemistry it has to be said absolutely loved the biology and mulled the english and about halfway through my first year, it dawned on me that I might want to do something else. So I had a bit of a breakdown and went to see the careers teacher, never a good idea, as we all know, who told me I should probably be a beautician or something like that. Um, I can't remember what that conversation was. But anyway, she did point me to some brochures and I discovered psychology, which I'd never even really heard of. And I sat in our college library and I read about psychology and I thought, oh my God, I get to do the biology that I love and I get to do the writing that I love and I can read lots of books which I loved and I can think about plants and animals and human beings and, and all of that and, and I can go to university and do that. So that was really when I decided to be a psychologist.
0: So where, where did you do your undergraduate degree? Southampton, Giles. Really? Are you were Southampton all the, all the way through?
1: Not quite. So, so when I was, uh, so a sad personal fact, when I was 15 my mother died. And I am one I'm one of at the time I was one of five children, and all of almost all of them were younger than me. So this left my dad on his own with five relatively small children. And uh I was needed at home. So when I applied to university, I got offers from five universities around the country. But basically my father said, I'm really sorry, I need you at home. You're gonna to have to come to Southampton. So that was really why I chose to come to Southampton. But but that wasn't a problem and I never regretted that and I had, an, I did a, an absolutely amazing psychology degree, um, undergraduate degree at Southampton and learnt a huge amount and met some wonderful people, many of whom are still my friends and learnt to love the university campus and uh, I guess that started a really early bond and of course my father was also a professor at Southampton at that stage, by that stage. So it felt, it felt very much like home and it was a, a wonderful place to do my undergraduate qualification.
0: So did did anywhere steal you away after after Southampton where where next on the on the career journey
1: Well I left I left Southampton in a massive grump decided that psychology did not have all the answers to all the world's questions which I had really expected it to have and um disappointed and decided I was going to never go back to university ever again and just going to go and do something else So I got on an aeroplane and I flew to America and I got a job in America and lived in Los Angeles for a while. And while I was there um, in Los Angeles, it struck me that Los Angeles was a very, very strange place. And that there was a rather spooky feeling about this place, which was that if, if, if the world had somehow stopped or Los Angeles had stopped functioning as it did as a city, the sand would just very quickly encroach. And within a matter of what felt like a few short years, the whole city would have disappeared and there'd be no evidence of human occupation there at all because it was so temporary and such a a fragile kind of environment. I remember being terribly shocked to learn that all the suburban lawns, the the green grass that we grow because it just grows in this country, had to be specially planted in order to have a lawn. But underneath that, in the sand, because that's what Los Angeles is built on, they had to lay a network of, of irrigation pipes underneath the the grass and then lay the grass on top in order for the grass to have any chance of growing in order for you to have a lawn and that seemed to me such an extraordinary artificial thing to do in a place that was really not designed to support that kind of life that I began to think about why human beings lived in the way they do and why they chose to live in those places and how they chose to live and how they chose to create this strange artificial life on top of this barren desert which is what that part of Southern California actually is. And it got me thinking a lot about the way human beings interact with their environment and the fact, one of the things that had disappointed me about my psychology degree was that so much of it seemed to be about what happened inside people's heads, understandably, because it's psychology, but it doesn't seem to bear that much relation to the interesting things that happened between human beings and what was outside of them and all around them, and not just the the social, but also the physical environment. And I got really, really interested in um, urban landscapes and, um, I guess, what we used to call back then, man-environment man, um, interactions, and came back to the UK in the end. I decided I couldn't live in California any longer and looked for an MSC course and found something called environmental psychology which was run at Surrey University. So after doing my masters at Surrey which I absolutely loved which was a year of intellectual awakening and I met some amazing people and I suddenly started to think about human beings in a completely different way and basically the whole um the whole focus of my attention and engagement with psychology turned from within people's heads to the to that amazing space between the environment and people and how the space between those two was a, a, a want to sound, a risk of sounding ridiculous, transactional, and that actually we shape our environments in the same way our environments shape us. And there is this endless and continuous fluid exchange between us and our environments and, and the things that we do. And I got very interested in burglary, particularly, because burglars, of course, use their physical environment as a set of opportunities. So there's a kind of an opportunity structure out there in the environment that, that lends itself more or less to 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 burglars to explore and find find opportunities to burgle. And so I did uh, for my dissertation piece, I did a study of um ex-ant burglary offenses, where I mapped them and plotted them and discovered that if you got enough offences from the one person, you could predict pretty care closely where that burglar actually lived and therefore who he was who he probably was. From the locations of his offences, because they ended up describing a circle around his home. So, if you if you connected a load of offences by a mo- the same modus operandum, you could then pretty much guess who it was who was doing them, because you knew you could predict where he lived. And that was a that was an amazing piece of work, which then led me to apply for a job with the Home Office, uh, with their Research and Planning Unit, which I then uh, worked in for the next four years or so doing some absolutely amazing work with another astonishing branch of of young people uh we had the best time ever we were it was the early 1980s no it wasn't it was the late 1980s we were all in london we were all slightly overpaid and doing the most brilliant job and we thought we were awesome and we had the best time ever and my some of my closest long-term friends were made in that amazing time i should also say that while i was at surrey i met my husband so that was part of the kind of amazing year, intellectual and um, emotional year that I had that, that kind of set me up really for the rest of my life. And then we had the, I had an amazing time at the Home Office, which got me to do some astonishing work um, with all sorts of interesting groups of people, uh, particularly sex offenders. I did a long period of work, which then extended into some time I spent at Bristol University, where I studied sex offending and sex offender treatment programmes um, in Bristol. At Bristol University, in their Department of Law, which again was an amazing education and at that point, at about four years into my time in Bristol, I spoke to my dad, who offered me a job back in Southampton, or well, he said, "You could apply for a job back in Southampton. you will of course have to be interviewed, but you'll probably get it because you are my daughter so i I'm, you know, I'm not going to be shy about the fact that there was quite a lot of nepotism there, so he offered me a job as a relatively lowly research assistant because by this, this stage of my life I had done quite a lot of research, and i had i was um was heading for the slightly higher ranks of career researcher and but I took several steps back and joined him in his medical research council. Um, it was called the environmental epidemiology unit when I joined it. Uh, I joined him and he was running the unit by that stage and they were studying uh, or we were studying back then the relationships between what, how a fetus grew inside its mum and the, the long-term risk that that growth pattern and that growth trajectory and the things that happen to that fetus, that the risk that that set up of a lifetime of health or illness. Uh, And that, uh, I mean, I'd obviously had many conversations with my father about that over the years that he'd been developing this this theory, this hypothesis, uh, and it became increasingly interesting. And I became increasingly interested in swapping my focus in psychology away from offending behaviour, perhaps more to public health. And that effectively is what I did when I moved to Southampton back in 1994 to take up a position in the
0: MRC unit. So did you do your PhD when you returned to Southampton?
1: I did my PhD back in Southampton. So I have an undergraduate degree from Southampton and a PhD from Southampton and an MSc from Surrey University.
0: So really unusually for the series of people that we've been speaking to for this podcast, you had experience within government before returning to the academy
1: it 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 was an amazingly useful start to a research career i do have a pervading sense of how politicians and policymakers work because i was a civil servant for four years and i worked um you know through the echelons of the civil service we worked to the home secretary and we used to see the home secretary occasionally and uh, certainly worked for the for the junior ministers and and the work that we do in the week um used to build up to a crescendo at the end of the week and it was all about putting what the minister needed for his weekend's work in the red box that he used to take home at the weekend. And if you didn't get it in the red box, whatever you were working on basically did not get ministerial attention. And you learnt very quickly what, yeah, we did learn very quickly what got ministerial attention and what didn't, and what was uh, a useful way of packaging research data and what was not a useful way. And this was a a conservative government. This was Maggie Thatcher's government in the early years. And there was a, a pervading sense within that government that good men just knew. They knew. We didn't need research because good men knew. Uh, And that was a a challenging research environment to work in. And if you wanted your data or your ideas or your conclusions really heard, you had to be pretty savvy about packaging them. And I won't won't pretend that I ever got very good at that because I wasn't there long enough. And there were people I worked for who were much better at that than I was. But it it did teach me a huge amount about about what it is that politicians and those who work with policy actually need from research data that I have never forgotten.
0: So casually spooling forward to a couple of decades. Tell us about what it is that you do at the university now and which faculties you work in.
1: I'm in two faculties. I'm in the Faculty of Medicine and I'm also just taken up a half time post in the Faculty of Environmental Life Sciences. I'm working for the School of Health Sciences.
0: So your body of work has continued to take in those early interests in terms of understanding how the environment interacts with the individual and vice versa. Can you explain what EACH-B is and what you've been looking to change? So
1: EACH-B is a a five-year NIHR funded programme that the NIHR have kindly given us or committed to giving us 2.4 million pounds to spend. Um, And we are spending it developing um, an intervention to support young people eat better and move more and this is a, a fantastic partnership with life lab who you know all about when we were thinking about developing hb we had already become very interested in young people adolescents as a population for thinking through things with in terms of them their health now and benefiting from improvements in any improvements in their health now would also be then let taken in forward into adulthood and of course would also benefit the next generation, but adolescents being, of course, the next generation of parents. Uh, so building on the whole idea that what happens to to babies when they're in utero determines their lifelong health and their longevity, really. So so each bee was about working with young people, building on the amazing work they do at Life Lab. So so the the intervention that we've developed, now developed because we're two and a half years into each bee the intervention that we've developed in hb uh is has got three bits to it so the first bit is that young people come and do the amazing life lab program and they learn about the science behind health messages and they learn about their own uh their own lives and and what the lives they're leading and how what the lives they're leading now mean for their health in the future and their health as parents and so they become very engaged actually it's incredibly motivating interesting and engaging module that they do and they come into the. in the olden days before covid they came into the hospital and had a an amazing hands-on science day um so so the plan with the hb intervention which we're just beginning to trial now is that young people come and do the life lab module or they do the life lab module they are then um they then return to school with their science teachers who have been trained in skills to support behaviour change, specifically changes in diet and physical activity. Uh, and they are the young people are also while they're at the, having their lovely life lab day, they are given access to a purpose design purpose built um, uh, app with game features to support improvements in diet and physical activity. And this is a this this uh, app has been developed with young people over the last two and a half years uh, with a, a group of very talented game designers at Glasgow Caledonian University um, uh, and young people uh, and is um, offers all kinds of support through gaming really of of and ways to 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 become more active and and ways to improve diet and physical activity but it also engages with the kind of the context around the choices that young people are making when they're choosing to, what to eat and whether to be active. Uh, and it dabbles in, uh, in, introduces young people to ideas to do with food marketing and food marketing practices. And starts to in, the plan is that it starts to engage young people in thinking about the choices they're making in a bigger context and why they might be making the choices they're making and why they might not want to make those choices and what those choices mean for them. So, as I said, we're starting to trial that. The plan is to trial it in 2,500 young people in the Wessex region through the Lifelab network of schools.
0: So when the country started to shut down, what happened to HB?
1: Well, we were just at the point, we'd just run the pilot of the uh, intervention trial in schools and got the data back and were very pleased with the way it had gone, very pleased with the engagement with schools who had been amazing um, and delighted with the data, which was a really great quality. And it had gone incredibly well and we were delighted with ourselves when suddenly in March, 2020, um the world gets shut down and all the schools are closed and it becomes obvious overnight that we can't actually go forward with our uh big trial. So the other thing that happened is that our the weekend of March the 20 something last year um which was the first week of the lockdown when the team and I had all been sent home to go and work at home and we weren't seeing each other very much and we decided to have the first back then it seems so innocent now but but back then we just had the first the first online piss up, and so we <laughs> so we arranged to meet on the Saturday night. Of, and this is so given bearing in mind that lockdown actually happened on the twenty third of March officially, so this must have been the twenty first of March. We met on the Saturday night and had a few drinks online and talked about what the situation meant for us all and what it was like. And it suddenly dawned on us that this was a quite extraordinary time to be talking to young people. About an extraordinary event and the things that were happening to young people through school closures, through shutting down of all their ability to see their friends and hang out with people, which were about to—we all knew was about to happen, about to be announced on the Monday. What that might mean for them in their in their uh, social psychological development, which is so dependent on beginning to express independence away from home and some autonomy away from family and exploring things through networks of peers and social relationships and basically practicing being competent adult human beings but in a kind of small and safe way, all those, the opportunities to do all of those things were being denied to them pretty much overnight. Um, and it struck us that this was a very important time to be talking to young people. So while we were all waiting for each bee to start again, the whole team uh, devised a, pro- a project called Tech 19, which is teenagers during COVID-19 which was really about following up young people long-term, groups of young people long-term through the period of the pandemic and finding out what it what they were doing, how they were feeling, what it meant for them. But also, um, fascinatingly, we had been approached by, I think at that stage, Southampton City Council uh, for some help with the messaging. Southampton, we work, we've always worked Southam- with Southampton City Council, with the public health department, um, uh, and they were aware that we were talking to young people because uh, Debbie Chase, who's our current director of public health, is a, is a one of the uh, investigators on the EHB project. So we've always worked closely together. So the public health team came to us with um, some requests for support with messaging to young people specifically about how to engage them in. Uh, in the, I guess COVID regulations, which then came into force on the on Monday, the 23rd and uh we then expanded this to include hampshire county council and have subsequently talked to city councils to to local governments uh, uh, um uh, across the uk about the data that we've been collecting from young people through the through the pandemic so it was all a wonderful time to do research in many ways because there was such a push on being immediately effective and such an enormous sense of urgency back then about helping out with the crisis that we managed to scramble a research project and funding and get ethics permission to carry out the research project within a space of two weeks. So pretty much by the beginning of April, we were already collecting data from young people.
0: So people listening might not be aware of the normal turnaround time for a project of this type. In your experience, how long does it normally take you to be able to put together a research project to receive ethics approval, to source your co-investigators and to engage with local government partners and actually start the work?
1: Well, that's how long it's a piece of string. But to give you some idea, uh, from the moment we started putting together the ideas for each bee in a formal application to the moment we received the funding was two years. So it took us two years to get each bee going. So two weeks is astonishing.
0: It really is lightning pace, isn't it?
1: And testament to the university's ability to really pull things out of the bag. Um, and it was, uh, people were amazing and a total credit to, to the University of Southampton.
0: So this really highlights the importance of being able to build long-term relationships with partners inside the policy environment. Clearly, your investment in time and resources over the years with Hampshire County Council and with Southampton City Council was really important in them feeling confident to be able to pick up the phone and speak to you.
1: I suppose they knew what we were doing because Debbie is such a great ally and such a great friend of, of the university and of the, of the work that is done in university. She was aware, and I guess so were others. There is a close relationship between the um, the public health department and various bits of the Faculty of Medicine, so so you know, we have lots of public health consultants who who work part time at the university so it's uh so that is that's a, a relationship of long standing i suppose what particularly delighted me was that actually the relationship was of mutual benefit this was not us just feeding data back to the public health department this was them coming to us and asking us specific questions that they would like they wanted answers to as well and the the we were able to work through that period over the next six months really nine months in a way that i've never been able to work before which was in a really responsive and um immediate way so because we i hadn't really said much about what we did through tech 19 but basically we recruited a number of groups of young people um who we then talked to regularly uh through the for the first six months and then slightly less regularly through the last uh six months. And we will speak to them again for the last time next month in March 2021. So we will have been speaking to them on and off for a year, these groups of young people. And they've been amazingly consistent with wanting to help us out and um offering their opinions and being enthusiastic about the research. And the some of the feedback we've had is that actually it's been helpful to them to have and and enjoyable for them to have something to focus on as on each other to talk to and a space where they can express their opinions about the world. um, According to COVID. So, so that that's been a, a great thing. But the other thing that has been wonderful is this relationship, this really close working relationship an iterative working relationship with, with local government and people who are active in local government. So as a researcher, as someone who came into this, you know, I want to change the world. I still want to change the world in my sad naive way. And, Uh, There aren't that many opportunities as a researcher to get to have direct impact on actually what happens in the real world outside the university. So for us to be able to really genuinely immediately help the COVID response was a fantastic thing to be able to do and a huge source of pride to all of us in the team. And on the the reverse of that, you know, the, 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 the government departments that we were able to work with, the local government that we were able to work with, had the best available data pretty much immediately collected in a rigorous and sensible way and interpreted by people who think about these things a lot. So so it, it was an incredibly mutually beneficial relationship and, and I would love to think that that this can continue. Um, it certainly taught me a lot about our aspirations and the way our aspirations as a university, to be a civic university, a way those aspirations can play out and how we need to, to deliver on that that, promise really to the to the city that we are based in
0: the brc which is the national institute for health research funded biomedical research center takes new discoveries treatments and technologies into the clinic using unique tools facilities and world-leading expertise so perhaps we should touch a little bit upon what you think the civic university should be
1: i think going forward i think the one of the, the major aspirations of the next brc is to be um, of service to the region in a much more immediate way and much better connected into the health needs of this coastal city and all this this, this coastal collection of, of counties which have pockets of, of serious poverty. Uh, so I think a closer, more responsive relationship with stakeholders across the region is gonna be part of the way We move forward with the BRC, but it also, I think, serves the university purpose of being more civic-minded and being more um, locally connected. So we have done some um, activities to support this, which have been about asking local people what they think the major health needs are uh, across the region and uh, for them, and what they think the priorities are. And we've uh, we this when we were allowed to actually see people and talk to them. this was now 18 months ago we did a a series of consultations over the summer with people at public events asking them what they thought the priorities for health research were and uh, have a short list of those unsurprisingly the top one came out as mental health and I think that is still something that we need to think about very hard and I think that has we are taking that forward in uh, our plans to develop a center of adolescent health and well-being because adolescent mental health and well-being will definitely be a prominent feature of the research program for that center that we're, now, we're currently building. But I think, I think one of the things that we have learned over the course of the pandemic and over our closer working relationship through our closer working relationship, particularly with Southampton City Council, is that we are as a university in a unique position of trust because we are perceived to be an organization with integrity and in possession of resource but also important data and and understanding and we are not doing a service to our local community if we don't share those data and that understanding with with them Uh, and i i think the university should be massively proud of many of the activities that it's undertaken over the last uh well now nearly a year many of which have benefited the local population but have also benefited the university because because we now have this fabulous working relationship close working relationship with uh local government and with public health departments and with people from all across the region which we just didn't have before so the pandemic if it's done anything for us as a university has done that and i think it does make me feel enormously proud that we've been able to do this and that we have as a university this reputation locally for integrity and uh and trustworthiness and and it behoves us to to build on that going forward
0: so as ever if you'd like to find out more information about hb or indeed tech 19 you can find links to those in the show notes in the meantime, I've been Giles. This has been Policy Pod. If you've enjoyed this episode, please rate, review and recommend wherever you get your podcast. It really does help to make us more visible. This podcast wouldn't be possible without the patience, perseverance and positivity of Teo Kuriaki in Public Policy Southampton, Kate Briggs-Price and Ben McQuigg in Keep Busy Productions. Our music is by University of Southampton composition student Paul Forster. If you want to find out more about our work, you can find us on Twitter at Public Policy UOS, on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash public policy uos and on linkedin at linkedin.com forward slash showcase forward slash public policy uos until next time goodbye